Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, Dr. Harvey Risch talks about the CDC plan to create classification codes for unvaccinated people, also the impact of COVID vaccine on cancer, and what it's like to be a scientist at Yale when you go against the grain. Reading just a little bit of what Dr. Harvey Risch recently wrote, he says, the CDC recently codified International Classification of Disease Codes for COVID-19 Vaccine Status. ICD codes are extensively used in medical records, medical insurance data, and health research to classify precisely disease states as well as injuries from exogenous agents such as accidents, medication, and medical device injuries, toxic chemicals, etc. Vaccination status is not a disease or an injury state, yet CDC has rationalized creating ICD codes for it. The coding is set to become effective on April 1st, 2023. He goes on to write, as described by Dr. Robert Malone, quote, the ICD classification system is run by the World Health Organization, not the U.S. government. The vaccine status ICD codes were developed by the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services some nine months ago, and CDC is implementing them. Well, all of this sounds a bit arcane, but it struck me as I read this article as potentially very important. And Dr. Risch agreed to talk with us today to explain why. So he's going to talk about the CDC plan to create classification codes for unvaccinated people, also Interestingly, the impact of COVID vaccine on cancer, there's been a lot of talk about that, a lot of speculation. Since he specializes in cancer, I thought he was a great person to ask about this. And I also asked him what it's like to be an esteemed scientist at an establishment institution like Yale when you go against the grain, something that used to be embraced as part of science in a way that truth is discovered. But today, as we know, that can be the kiss of career death. Dr. Risch is a senior scholar at Brownstone Institute, a physician and a professor emeritus of epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. His main research interests are in cancer etiology, prevention and early diagnosis, and in epidemiologic methods. So here is Dr. Risch. We've been put through two years or three years of very draconian uh, policies by the government and its health regulatory agencies, and that these codes kind of went through the roof in my mind about the hazards attached to the, uh, collecting systematic information that is tantamount to a vaccine passport. Who was it who first saw this? Do you have any idea in your circle? Did you see the advertisement or the request for comment on the proposal for these codes, or how did that come about? I saw it from a posting from Robert Malone, who I think put it on his Substack, and he, you know, was just commenting about it without really kind of thinking about taking it further than just the fact that they were going to collect this information and the ramifications of it. Before we dig into it, could you, in just a paragraph, describe in very simple terms what this is a story of? Sure. So um, health information is collected by health insurers uh, across the world and governments across the world for bookkeeping, for paying for the the care and so on. 
and for doing studies of how to do better care through coding of diseases and hazardous exposures. This is called the International Classification of Diseases, or ICD. The one that we're talking about now is the branch for clinical medicine that um, includes codes for every different kind of disease that's been described, as well as toxic exposures, things like snake bite, traffic accidents, and, and so on. And the ICD system is run by the World Health Organization. And in the United States, the WHO goes through Medicare and Medicaid services to maintain the system, explain it, and, and so on, how it works to clinicians, to insurance companies, and, and all that. <laughs> and so what happened is, a year ago last April, the WHO, WHO proposed adding codes. So there have always been codes for vaccination status. I don't know how old those are. Those seem to predate the ones for COVID. But they proposed adding two codes for vaccination status in COVID, one code for being unvaccinated, and a second code for being partially vaccinated. And they defined partial as current as of CDC pronouncements at the time of the healthcare interaction of, of the patient whose code is being recorded. Okay, before you finish that, to break it down, if I go to the doctor or the hospital for anything, they will put in a code when they diagnose me and that code is transmitted to some international body that tracks the diseases and illnesses people have? Well, not exactly. The they will, For example, if you have... Um, uh, your gallbladder removed. So you go to the doctor, you'll get a diagnosis of cholecystitis, that's for uh, inflammation of the gallbladder. And that has a code and that'll go to your insurance company. And if you're over 65 or in Medicare or Medicaid, it'll go to them also. And they keep track of it. The insurance companies do it because they're the ones who have to pay. And I guess Medicaid, Medicare also, they pay the doctors, the hospitals, the labs and, and so on. So all of this is just kind of banal record keeping for the most part. The insurers also use the information to be able to say, well, did people who have exposures to th this kind of circumstance have higher risk of getting this other kind of outcome? So they do comparative studies to try to understand the, the medical care system as a whole through all of this coding and all of the data. The data are nominally they're, they are maintained in, in very confidential circumstances on individuals protected by HIPAA laws. But on the other hand, they're analyzed but in groups, which protects the confidentiality, but still allows the insurers and the government and health researchers to have access to group data to be able to do analyses of, of these kinds. Okay, so please continue back to them wanting to create new classifications regarding COVID vaccine. So... The bizarre circumstance in creating these vaccine codes is that they didn't create a code for fully vaccinated. And there's a, now on a public website some uh, text of discussions between the uh, health insurers or their representatives and I guess each other and, may, and I think the Medicare people about creating these codes and what they were going to be used for. And the sense that I got from this discussion is that they consider not being vaccinated to be a hazardous exposure. Now, I can't think of anything in the world where if you don't do something 
in just your general life. I didn't drive to the store. Is that a hazardous exposure? Um, you know, it makes no sense to have this, this bizarre backwards worldview. And the only reason they could have this backwards worldview is they consider full COVID vaccination to be the non-hazardous category. That's their baseline category. Everybody who's fully vaccinated in their terms are the safe people and the unvaccinated and partially vaccinated people are the hazard people that have to be recorded because of their hazards. This is obviously backwards. And it's backwards even because the government has said it's backwards because the CDC put out on its website of uh, August 11th of last year, the statement that the vaccines do not substantially prevent transmission of, of COVID. They said that the two doses of the vaccines have a minuscule benefit in suppressing transmission and booster doses have at best a transient benefit that wanes with time. And everybody in public health will say that, rational people in public health will say that anything you do as a policy in public health has to be sustained. You can't have a policy that has only transient benefit because it just doesn't do enough for imposing whatever the policy is on the population. You have to get some substantial benefit out of it in order to justify the imposition. So the CDC has said that the vaccines do not suppress transmission. That removes the government interest in vaccine mandates for what that's worth. But it also says that there's no rational reason the government needs to be collecting this information in the first place because it has no tangible benefit on anything that the government should be doing comparisons over in the medical healthcare domain because there's no difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And on top of that, um, obviously every individual dose of vaccine carries risks known and as yet unknown. So in addition to marginal, if any benefit for people, you're exposing yourself to additional risk every time. Would there be some benefit to, if the public could get the information, one thing I see is you could actually tell who is the sickest. There's some claims now being being made that, oh, COVID causes heart problems. It's worse than the vaccine, heart problems caused by the vaccine, which I suspect won't turn out to be the case. But even if so, there would be a way we could measure it if we were following those codes. Is that true? Um, yes and no. The problem is that you can't infer from being unvaccinated or partially vaccinated that everybody else is vaccinated because there's no code for refused to divulge vaccine status and there's no code for unknown vaccine status. And those are going to be large numbers of the population and so you cannot subtract from the total the partially and unvaccinated people to get the vaccinated people. There's just no way to know. It'd be wildly wrong to do that. And so there's no way you can look at vaccine damage, which is probably another reason why they didn't make a code for fully vaccinated, because that way nobody can actually address people who are vaccinated and their rates of heart attacks and strokes and cancer and things. One of the big fears I think people have, particularly in light of what's happened so far, is by people being marked one way or another, it gives the government such control. And you can envision a time, used to sound like science fiction or far-fetched, but you can envision a time when people display what the government doesn't like in terms of social or political behavior. Maybe you attended the January 6th rally for President Trump. Um, maybe it's you didn't get vaccinated. And suddenly, because the government has control over so many things now, they can make it where your credit card doesn't work, your car won't turn on, you can't buy groceries. Um, 
what do you foresee with a system like this in today's environment? Well, uh, you know, the theory is that the government could do that. It's certainly the Canadian government did that for peaceful protests. Um, and we've seen um, three years of lying to us. Virtually everything the government said and did in terms of the pandemic was a lie from early treatment, the benefits of early treatment, the hazards of early treatment, the benefits of lockdowns, the benefits of masking. Um, you know, uh, Walensky just testified <clears throat> in the, excuse me, in the congressional hearing. The CDC that, director. Yes, that uh, the, that masks, have, we, we never investigated masks because the evidence for their benefit is so overwhelming. And this was a week after the Cochrane Commission issued a 280-page report showing that masking does absolutely nothing, either for source control or for personal protection. And she, knowing that report a week later, lied to Congress. This is the, the, the tenor of the, all of the discussions from the government lying to us for three years over this pandemic and virtually everything it did. And we're supposed to turn around and trust that they would not make misuse of, of this very stigmatizing information to lock us out of activities of normal daily life that we are, our human rights are entitled to, uh, you know, as, as part of our life in the United States, why would we believe that they wouldn't do it? Do you sense, as I do, that the opportunity of COVID was used, well, was used as an opportunity by the pharmaceutical industry, the vaccine industry specifically, as sort of a power grab to quickly do things and encroach upon areas that they had dared not tread until that point because the public wouldn't have accepted it? Suddenly, it seems like a lot of territory was gathered up. Certainly, they have a lot of influence over government policies, military policies, the mandate question. How do you see that? Well, <clears throat> if you look at all of the government messages that it paid media to put out, as well as putting out itself, about vaccination, vaccination for children, the safety of the vaccines and all that, it's been two years of propaganda. If you look at the fear of all the messages that have come out of the heads of the government uh, COVID policy making, so Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, um, Dr. Burks, and, and all of them, and all of the fear mongering messages that have come out of them through the, the, the state media, that all of this is calculated to be a psychological op to instill fear into people to controlling their behaviors. They've tried this in the past. It never went very far, in, you know, in the SARS-1 and MERS and other pandemics that never went anywhere because those fizzled on their own. And so the propaganda just didn't go on long enough to make a big enough dent. But now SARS-CoV-2 lasted in the population long enough before the vaccines came out that it was a, that they were able to instill enough fear into everyday people that their behaviors were essentially controlled by fear-based decisions. And, I, and that's the problem here. Well, let me point to a couple of specifics. All the decisions that were made and the misinformation that was put out that I can think of points toward an outcome that drives you toward vaccination, even when the vaccines were not working very well or lasting very long. You can start with the notion that if we hadn't locked everybody down, much as the Amish went on with their daily lives, I did a story on that, and they got COVID quickly, it raced through their society. And they claim, and there's certainly nothing that counters this claim, that they had no higher incidence of overall deaths over time 
by letting it happen quickly than we did by dragging it out over many years. But they had less need for vaccination because they were done with the disease in large part with a lot of natural immunity before the vaccine was even introduced to the market. If we had let COVID run through our society, which, you know, to the other side's point, could have overwhelmed some hospitals in a way that, you know, would have in some cities made healthcare difficult. But if it had been allowed to roll through society with SWAT teams of public health experts treating hot spots on a targeted basis, we could have been done with the supposed crisis before the vaccines were introduced. But the idea of all the things we were pointed to and everything that we did drove us into this fear state that kept us in seeming need of the vaccines when they came out. So there's a couple of things here. Um, the first is limited hospital resources is not uh, valid grounds for denying human rights. That the government spent untold billions of dollars on pushing an unnecessary vaccine that it should have spent on building hospitals, if that was the question. The, the, um, the large ship that was brought to New York City was never actually used. You know, they did, it wasn't needed in one of the main hotspots of the original pandemic. <clears throat> now, I would say that this phony argument is also based on the denial of early treatment, that the studies of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are proved conclusively that these drugs work. And that the absolute denialism of the government and the their state media uh, hench people is to suppress something that would have derailed the whole vaccine enterprise because these medications work so well that virtually nobody would have died from from it. As we know, you, you know, 300,000, 500,000 people died from COVID, not with COVID, but from COVID before the vaccine era started. And, and that was due to, to suppressing early treatment that was known. And this and the early treatment issue was known before President Trump ever said anything. The Minister of Health in France in October of 2019 already changed the status of hydroxychloroquine from over-the-counter or something you just walk in the drugstore and buy. She changed it to prescription only to put a limit on how people could get it. She made phony arguments that it was genotoxic or that it's related compound chloroquine was genotoxic. This is a, was totally absurd. These are drugs that have been used in tens of billions of doses for more than 50 years in everybody, in, in pregnant women and elderly people and, and babies and everybody completely safely used. So this was all part of pharma campaigns that it knew what was coming before even Fauci, Dr. Fauci knew it was going. Dr. Fauci appears to have known on January 6th from the FOIA emails. That was his first knowledge that there was a coronavirus circulating. So pharma knew well before that. And, and they had been working on the vaccines for this for 10 years. Moderna he has been working on this for a long time. So they they all knew this was coming. They were planning for this as the way they were going to take over the medical care space by mass vaccination campaign forced on the population by propaganda. And that was laid out in event 201. And I guess um, I have argued, I would like to hear what you think about this, that by overplaying their hand, by making illogical statements and false statements, meaning public health officials and government, and the forceful nature with which they tried to get people vaccinated and not address the adverse events and the obvious, that it drove people who had trusted vaccines 
to not only mistrust the advice they're getting on COVID-19, but really they're looking at childhood vaccines for the first time. They're thinking if the government's lying to me about this, what else could it be? And I think they've, they're now blaming anti-vaxxers for you know, vaccination status lapsing in people or the vaccination rates going down. But I would argue they have only themselves to blame because the way to build confidence in your vaccine system is to address shortfalls and assure the public you're constantly aware of and, and handling and improving vaccines when there are adverse events. But they've done quite the opposite. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, we've come to the point where we don't trust the government for anything. We've seen the Department of Justice go completely politicized. You know, the FBI go completely politicized. The, it's not just the healthcare administration. It, it's the whole government run amok in the administrative state. And, and so why would we trust the government telling us anything at this point until they prove to us that they're being honest? What should people do, do you think, about this proposed coding system? I think everybody needs to contact their congresspeople and their and senators and and write letters and and express their dissatisfaction with a system that is more stigmatizing than AIDS. If this information were to be provided to anyone outside of the rightful holders of the privacy information, it's it's extremely stigmatizing, and there's nothing to stop the government from doing that because if they do it, how can you claw it back? How can, how can you ever get it back? What are you gonna, you're gonna sue the government? It's too little, too late. There's nothing stopped, there's no checks and balances to keep the government from doing anything that it wants to do to smear or target people that it ha, it, you know it thinks it wants to control. Well, sadly, I've started to believe that the federal agencies are more powerful than, I call them the persistent bureaucracy, are more powerful than the political figures who oversee them. Number one, they donate the interests that support the federal agencies, which are, you know, military contractors, the pharmaceutical industry, these powerful industries, donate to members of Congress to not tamper with these federal agencies in the way that maybe they should be tampered with. And secondly, I think, you know, they get, they're just so much tied into the power of the federal, the power these federal agencies have over, should be the other way around, but it seems to me they're they bully the members of Congress and they use the leadership of both parties. When I talk to members, both Democrats and Republicans, they're not allowed to do things that they want to do in terms of oversight because their leaders are co-opted and on board with these notions of letting these agencies continue as they have. Otherwise, I think it's it would only be logical at this point to rebuild CDC from the bottom up because by their own admission, they failed at the only job they had preparing for a pandemic with trillions of dollars spent over the years and made the wrong move and seemed utterly as if no preparations had ever been made for a pandemic when, when this broke out and yet no changes have been made. And Congress kind of makes some, a little bit of noise about, yeah, we got to do something. We got to look at it, but I don't think anything big is going to be done. Well, there's two things. First of all, there are 21 doctors in Congress or in the last Congress anyway. And um, and I'm not sure if that includes the Senate, but none of them said anything throughout the entire pandemic. They're, they're all uh, PAC money controlled as to what they're saying. Um, Rand Paul, you know, spoke out a bit, but, but didn't get to some of the real issues. He was good on the issues he took on, but didn't get to enough of them. Um, the CDC and the FDA has good people in, you know, in the lower and middle levels, the people who are the scientists who do, who do their job, who are technically adept and careful and don't make the policy. They just feed the raw 
information into the policy levels of these administrations. It's the policy levels that are corrupt. And, um, and I say that with one caveat, and the caveat is, is that the epidemiologists at the CDC are incompetent. And I say that because they've been doing vaccine efficacy studies using the wrong uh, numerical methods for analyzing them, that uh, they have carried out surveys to see whether the taking the vaccine or not leads to getting COVID or not. And they've done multiple of these studies over the last three years, and everyone is analyzed by the uh, study analysis that, that is based on the wrong kind of study that they did. And this has had the effect of exaggerating the vaccine efficacy to the point where the study that most recently came out this week or last week on the bivalent booster and its benefit or not for the XBB variant, which is the current one that's circulating, is that they estimate that that bivalent booster has a vaccine efficacy of 40 to 50%. And the real vaccine efficacy is 25 to 35%. They exaggerated it because of misuse of statistics that every one of those authors should have known better. They're all PhD or MD scientists who are doing epidemiological analyses and should know exactly the right methods for use based on the study as they carried it out. <clears throat> and so there, this is either incompetence or malignant malfeasance in misrepresenting the actual analysis and analytic results uh, of these products. And I, I can't think of how these people, some of these authors must have common sense, should have not addressed why there was a problem in, in these all these analyses, you know, study after study after study, and it's all done the same way wrong. And I just don't understand why the CDC get, has done that and hasn't paid any attention to this. I don't get it either. I mean, there was the case and I urge people to Go to CherylAxon.com. I've pasted up there at the moment. We're talking around February 10th, 2023. A story I did about Democrats and Republicans going on camera and talking about the, how their parties wanted to cover up vaccine autism link hearings and all kinds of stuff. I think that's really important. On CDC, uh, there was the case probably about two years ago, Congressman Thomas Massey caught them lying i don't use that word very much on news coverage and people follow me they understand why but in this case they intentionally knew they knew this information was wrong that they were putting out they admitted it to him on the phone about the vaccine i'll tell you what that was in a moment and they continued to distribute after promising to correct it they continued to give the misinformation in webinars to doctors and leaving it up on their website they falsely claimed very early on cdc signed by all of their experts on the vaccine committee that these vaccines helped people who already had had COVID. So that was that was to say, as COVID was quickly going through the population, well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get the vaccine because the vaccine can help you more. The studies showed that. Well, the initial studies didn't show that at all, quite the opposite. And when they knew this was a misrepresentation, they pretended that, that Congressman Massey brought it to their attention that nobody on the committee had read the studies or noticed that this false information somehow got written up at CDC and they all signed on to it. They were kind of saying, oh, bully for you, Congressman Massey, that you discovered something we all missed. But then, as I say, they continued to distribute the misinformation after he recorded these phone calls with them admitting it. And well, it's hard to know, come up with any reason why they would do that other than corruption. So I think there it's a little more complicated than that on vaccine efficacy. Um, in already people who've had COVID. 
there are some studies that show some small amounts of benefit. Um, there are also studies that show say, a big hazard. I'm sorry, before we go into that discussion, this was before there were any other studies showing that. I agree that they have come up with studies since then that um, claim some, some benefit. Okay. The point is this all happened initially before there were any studies. The CDC mm -hmm. falsely claimed that the first studies proved a benefit when they did not. And I think that misrepresentation prior to knowing anything else was very important at the time to sign on to something they knew had not been well, said. Well, I can tell you where that came from. That came, that, came, that came, this is uh, uh, publicly discussed now, a conversation that uh, Fauci and Collins, uh, and I think a couple other people in the administration had with four scientists, uh, Paul Offit, um, Akiko Iwasaki, who's from Yale, Peter Hotez, who was from Yale and is now at Tulane, I think. Um, and I'm forgetting who the fourth person was. And they asked the scientists whether natural immunity was as good as vaccine immunity and or how many doses of vaccine could be substituted for by natural immunity. <laughs> and Hotez and Iwasaki said none, that vaccine immunity is definitive and natural immunity is not worth anything. And that discussion led them to take that viewpoint, which permeated everything that came from that. They did not have actual data at that time to make those claims, yet they did it. Paul Offit, I believe, said <clears throat> that natural immunity could count for one of the two shots, um, and that he was convinced to go along with zero of the two shots. This was, of course, all wrong, contradicted, um, two millennia or more of evidence that natural immunity is very strong for, for infectious diseases that is known to the ancients. And, you know, so this was already malfeasance going on that into the process of, of deciding that people who've already had COVID should still be vaccinated because they'll get some better benefit. And it's irrational because as we've seen, no mandates have ever said you have to have COVID and be vaccinated in order to be protected enough that if vaccination status is sufficient, then it doesn't matter whether having had COVID before and being vaccinated is better. The better than what the mandate says is irrelevant. You only need what the mandate says. And natural immunity was known then, is known now, to provide longer, what's called more durable protection against reinfection compared to vaccine immunity. Vaccine immunity, the studies show, would last about six months. Um, natural immunity, there's a dozen studies that show it lasts from six to 13 months. So there's no question that we know for COVID, for Omicron, that, that, that natural immunity lasts better than vaccine immunity. After a short break, the COVID vaccine and cancer. I have two final questions on our final couple of minutes, so we'll just touch upon them. But first of all, and this is, we could do a whole nother discussion on this if you know anything about it. And if you don't have comments, that's fine as well. But I noticed you have a special interest in cancer. And I'm wondering if you've been able to make anything from anecdotal discussions or reports that somehow there is an increase in cancer rates due to or because of the COVID vaccine and or is it because of COVID? So this is gonna be difficult to disentangle. The initiation of new cancers takes um, basically a long time. So the cancers that occur the quickest are the blood cancers, leukemias and lymphomas. They can take two years, three years to come to diagnosis maybe. 
The shortest solid tumor that I know of is lung cancer, which takes five to 10 years. Pancreas cancer takes 10 to, to 15 or 20 years. Bladder cancer takes 20 years or more. Colon cancer takes 30 to 40 years. So nothing that you do, either from COVID or from vaccines, will cause a new cancer, except for maybe a few years on, that we're starting to see now with the blood cancers. The second thing is that the immune system keeps cancer cells in check. And if you disable the immune checking system, cancers that have started to grow will be able to grow faster and more, but they've already started. So they've gotten a head start. And that's why you may see cancers that either have not yet been diagnosed, but are already present, or cancers that are in remission like breast cancers that where, you, where the remission can last 20 years. And suddenly all these cancers are being reawakened because of the vaccine that has been like a blast of disablement to the immune system. So the checking that the immune system does becomes disabled and these cancers come to diagnosis. So they're not being created new, but they're already there. Nevertheless, they, they wouldn't have happened had the, the vaccine not been delivered. Well explained, thank you. And then my last point is, what is it like being affiliated with Yale, but having scientific opinions that while quite logical and certainly in line with thousands of other scientists, but who are usually smeared if they say it, what is it like having these opinions, but also being affiliated with Yale? Do they mind that you speak of these things and study these topics? Well, Yale has a, a very significant, important tradition of academic freedom. It goes back to our 1974 Woodward report, where we dealt with academic freedom in the wake of all the Vietnam era protests and so on. And so we, we support this. And, and my dean at the time put out a statement. He called me contrarian, but I think that's just kind of a language thing. You know, um, I, I think that it's important to have all sides in the discussion. And so my colleagues wrote a, an essay on, on Medium taking me to task. It was mostly smear. There was very little taking to me to task. They never even investigated that my PhD is on mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics, and I published on that. And, you know, you basically, freedom of academic speech means that the, the reader, the listener, the viewer looks at everything and, and draws one's own conclusion about the validity of the viewpoints expressed. And that's the way academia should be, and Yale has been pretty good about that, and why I've loved working at Yale all this time. Well, kudos to Yale, and I hope they keep it up because some of our best and most reliable information has come from independent, um, off the narrative, but very credible and sound researchers whose material has proven far more on target than those that I think were widely quoted in the press. I'm talking about you, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. There are many to name because I don't think they're fringe minority. I think you all are, when you get outside the public health, I guess what we call the current establishment, your views are not so contrary, and I don't think, but I'm glad that Yale is allowing you to continue in this area of study because it's super important. So thank you thank for you. joining us. A pleasure to talk with you. By the way, in the article I read that Dr. Rich wrote, he concluded by saying, the government itself through the CDC has determined that vaccination status is not of policy importance there can thus be no compelling interest for the government to forcibly collect this information against the wishes of the population, even if it were not stigmatizing. So much more so after the government has spent the last two years, he says, publicly demonizing unvaccinated people for their rational and legitimate personal health choices. 
Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a masterclass in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if so, you'll leave a great review, subscribe to it, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and now you can support independent journalism by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, Think for yourself.